We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures, visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The long arc of physics bends towards what exactly? Over the centuries, we have developed theories to explain the universe and then seen them overturned, replaced by something new. Einstein's gravity replaces Newton. Quantum mechanics upends a deterministic universe. It feels like progress, but is it? We imagine that there is a single, beautiful, simple set of laws that control how the universe works and that with each new idea, we are getting closer to the deep truth. But what if there is no single deep truth? Then what is it that we are learning anyway? particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I'm spending my life chasing the truth of the universe. And welcome to the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio in which we don't shy away from trying to discover the truth of the universe as blindingly bright as it may be. We bring you as close as possible to our current understanding of what's out there in the universe, from particles to galaxies, what we do and do not understand.
understand. My friend and co-host Jorge is on a break, so I've invited a guest to chat with us today about this journey to understand the universe. I personally see our cosmos as if it was a giant detective novel. We gather clues and try to figure out what is going on, what story out there explains everything that we see. As we collect more information, we can rule out ideas that we had initially. Sometimes we get a clue that provides a huge plot twist. What? The universe is fundamentally random? What? Gravity isn't the force after all? Mind blown. Those are my favorite moments in science because they make me feel like we are taking steps towards the truth. Like we're on a road towards figuring out what the story of the universe is. Because any good detective novel has to meet just one simple requirement. It absolutely, positively, without any deviation, has to follow its own rules. No cheating, no magic, no sudden changing of the rules to reveal the murderer. If the reader is going to have a fair chance at puzzling out the answer, then the clues have to make sense. They have to be real hints about the actual underlying story. There has to be a coherent story, one that's self-consistent. And we expect that to be true about the universe as well. Most of us who are not philosophers or super skeptics think that the universe is real, that it's out there, that it's following some set of laws, and that by paying attention, we could figure out what those laws are. We feel like we're chipping away at it from different angles, chemistry, biology, physics. But in the end, we are all working towards revealing a single larger truth. We're each turning on our own lampposts and shining light on what's under them with the idea that more light means a better view and that eventually we will be able to see the whole picture. But how do we know that's true? Is it possible that there isn't a single coherent story of the universe, that laws in different contexts and different situations could be incompatible with each other, that each field of science might be its own separate patch? not part of a larger quilt? So today on the podcast, we'll be asking the question. Could a grand unified theory of physics be impossible? To help me tackle this grandest of questions, I've invited a philosopher of physics who spends all of her days thinking about this particular question. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Katie Robertson. Katie has degrees in physics and philosophy, including a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge. She's now a fellow at the University of Birmingham, where she thinks about how the microscopic laws of physics weave themselves together to form the world we experience from thermodynamics to the arrow of time and black holes. Katie, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So let's get started by getting to know you and your interests a little bit. Obviously, black holes and the deep mysteries of physics are fascinating, but I'm sure there were many directions open to you from experimental physics to theoretical all the way to philosophy. What made you choose this path? Why do philosophy rather than theoretical physics or experimental physics? Um, well, I think I was always interested in the conceptual questions in physics. I remember getting really confused in high school physics and asking my teacher, like, oh, but what is an electron? He was like, well, that's kind of a philosophical question. Um, <laughs> and so then 
having studied physics and philosophy together, it was kind of like the philosophy of physics, which was the thing that really kind of grabbed me. And I was really bad at experiments. I managed uh, in my <laughs> first year labs to get uh, the gravitational constant to be a thousand. So I think that was uh, <laughs> never going to be an avenue for me, unfortunately. What's 40 orders of magnitude between friends anyway? <laughs> So do you take that's a philosophical question to be an encouragement or like a discouragement from a physicist that might seem like, you know, that's not really territory we want you to be asking. But it sounds like you took it as like, yeah, go dig deeper into that. I guess it's a sociological thing, isn't it? Whether you think it's a good question or not. I mean, I guess in some ways it's not an encouraging thing. Like if you think something is purely philosophical, you might think that means that it's out of the reach of empirical support and that's normally seen as a bad thing right the kind of key feature of science is that we can do experiments and get evidence in that way but i think there's a kind of like a continuum between the two between physics and philosophy and often in the history of physics lots of physicists have had certain like philosophical convictions that have led them to their results so i think it's quite interesting seeing how the two kind of mix together so yeah no i i I find it quite interesting but yeah so some might find it discouraging to find out it's it's a philosophical question I think that a lot of the questions we do in physics are philosophical and a lot of physicists have strong philosophical positions, which is usually I don't do philosophy, which is actually, of course, a strong philosophical position, right? Yeah, in itself. I mean, something like Einstein, right, with his worries about quantum mechanics were really driven by like philosophical views of what the world should be like. So, yeah, I guess it's one of those things, you know, you've got philosophical views, it's just whether you've explicitly uh, stated them and come to terms with them or whether they're kind of hiding buried in you somewhere. So then of all the questions in physics and philosophy, what's the one that keeps you up at night? I'm often describing science to our listeners is like just a bunch of people who are curious about the world. Everybody's chosen their one question to devote their life to. So what's the question you would ask like the Oracle or super advanced aliens if you had the opportunity? So one question that I have though though maybe it's like one of those philosophical questions that doesn't have a clear empirical (laughs) answer that maybe the aliens wouldn't be any better off with but one question I find really interesting is this question about what the relationship is between like what our theories tell us the world is like and what the world is like so Mm. is it going to be that our um, theories you know miss out some stuff or are we like using you know often we have like kind of extra mathematical structure more than what we need in our theories and sometimes we can know that we can know there's extra kind of descriptive fluff there um and sometimes we don't so i yeah i guess i'm interested in like you know how what we should read off from our theories you know which bits should we take to be true and really about the world which bits are kind of just kind of extra stuff that doesn't really correspond to anything Wonderful. Well, I love how philosophy lets us ask like profound questions about things that seem ordinary, right? Like, is our science teaching us anything at all or whatever? And one question that I really struggle with is like, why can I watch a ball fly through the air and describe it using fairly simple equations? You know, why is it possible for me to do that? And the naive answer, maybe the listener out there is thinking, well, because the universe follows laws and we can deduce those laws, no big deal. But I think as a particle physicist that probably those laws, if they exist, they operate at the microscopic level, right? On particles or strings or whatever the basic bits are. So if I'm watching those basic bits themselves, I can use those laws to describe them. But I'm not, right? I'm massively zoomed out. If I'm watching a baseball, it has like 10 to the 29 particles in it. 
Why, if I'm looking at 10 to the 29 basic bits, do I see anything that makes sense? Why isn't it all just fuzz and chaos? I mean, I don't have a simple rule that predicts the roll of a die or the movement of the stock market because it's so sensitive to those tiny details. Why isn't it always like that? Why, when you zoom out in the world, does any sort of simplicity seem to emerge? Can you help us get a grasp on that kind of question? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of different responses that people have given. So, I mean, there's a kind of defeatist response, right? Which is, well, it's very complicated, but we've got to do what we can to make sense of it. And so even though it appears that things are simple, that's just how we have to approach it, you know, in the same way uh, you might think, well, the reason that we have to, I don't know, use Newtonian mechanics or do biology and chemistry is just because we're really bad at solving the Schrodinger equation for complicated systems. And that's why we have these kind of other theories. So that's the kind of like defeatist option, which is that we're just not good enough at solving the really tough things. If we could, maybe we would use those instead to understand the ball going across the room. So is that saying that the universe really is complicated and that we're just making like a weak approximation of it by describing it simply? It's sort of like it's part of the fact that we're, you know, in the same way that if a child doesn't know very much language, uh, then they're going to describe the world in a kind of much less colorful way, perhaps, than an adult would describe the world. And so that makes it seem like the reason we see any simplicity is like, well, we're just a bit simple. So we have to be able to see things that way, which I, I find a bit, uh, well, it's defeatist. But also, I think it'd be kind of amazing, right, if we were just not very good at describing the world and the ways in which we did describe the world were so successful, right? Like, right. Uh, it seems like it's not just... Um, sometimes people have this distinction between the way the world really is versus like what's our perspective on it. So, you know, we see mm -hmm. the, the flowers in the garden in a really different way from how bees see flowers mm -hmm. in the garden because our eyes are sensitive to different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So you might think, well, maybe some of the simplicity is a bit like the kind of color of the flowers. It's just like how we see things rather than how they really are. But I don't really like that way of thinking about it because I think we're getting something really right, you know? It's not just that we're using simple laws because we're simple people. It's that uh, there is this kind of macroscopic simplicity out of this kind of microscopic kind of incredibly complicated stuff going on. Nonetheless, at this kind of higher mm -hmm. or emergent level, uh, you get this kind of simplicity. Right. Like to use your analogy of a child, maybe a child doesn't use flowery language, but when they say me want candy, you understand, right? It works. It's successful. And when I'm taking an approximation of something because I can't do the full calculation, I'm taking the first, second, third order of perturbation theory. I mostly get the answer right. And I can ignore the other details. And if the universe was just chaos and fuzz, then that wouldn't work, right? And it doesn't, for example, when I try to predict the stock market. Trust me, I've tried, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work. So I feel like the defeatist answer seems to totally fail at explaining why simplicity emerges. And also, do the defeatists call themselves the defeatists? I guess maybe the more... Uh correct way of labeling them. It might, might be somebody who would say something like, there's just a kind of methodological autonomy. Like the reason we have this methodology where there's all these different scientific disciplines that focus on different things. They have their own conferences. By and large, they just talk to each other rather than, you know, right. sometimes talk between each other. But, you know, the, the reason we have science kind of like hived into these different kind of institutions is just because that's how we go about doing it. So you can think of that as being the kind of methodological autonomy. It's like perhaps uh, the answer isn't just that it's, you know, it's simpler to use uh, Newtonian physics for uh, calculating 
what's going to happen with the ball across the park. It's not just that, it's also that that's the kind of right laws to be using at that level. Um, mm. So that would be a kind of different way of thinking about it, where it's not just that we're not very good at solving the Schrodinger equation for complicated systems, it's that actually these other laws and equations are kind of more suited in the same way that if I ask you what the weather's going to be tomorrow because I want to go to the park, the kind of right grain of answer is like, you know, it'll be sunny, it'll be raining. It won't be like to give me a kind of complete survey of what the weather across the whole world's going to be like. So yeah, one alternative answer to just saying, well, we've got to do things that way in the kind of defeatist or kind of methodological approach would be to say, well, actually there's kind of different laws are appropriate for different things in the same way different tools are appropriate for different tasks or something like that. But does that reject like reductionism? Does that say that those laws, F equals MA, for example, doesn't arise somehow from like the toing and froing of the basic bits that they emerge at their own level? Or are you suggesting that they do emerge and that there just are naturally these different scales which the universe coalesces into simplicity? Right. So I think reductionism is very fraught debate because lots of people mean different things by it, right? Like some people mm. mean by it, again, a kind of methodology like, hey, you want to understand something? look at its component parts. That's the best way to go about doing it. If I want to understand this thing, I'm going to understand all of its parts and that's how I'll understand it. That's what a particle physicist would do, for example. <laughs> and, you know, that also goes across other sciences. For instance, you know, if you want to understand disease, some people think really the crucial thing to understand is the kind of genetic factors that lead to that disease. Other people might think, oh, perhaps there's a kind of, uh, the environment plays a large role. So there's kind of this kind of theme of understanding things in terms of their mm -hmm. parts kind of goes across all the different sciences, I think. That's one form of reductionism. Another form of reductionism would be to kind of be a kind of more meaty claim about uh, the way the world is. So to say, really all that exists is the very fundamental particles. Whatever they turn mm -hmm. out to be in the end, they're gonna be all that there really is. Everything else is just a kind of different way of talking about those things, a very complicated different way. But I think that the kind of probably the most useful way of talking here about reductionism is to talk about how we understand like how one theory is related to another. So the mm -hmm. kind of obvious example of this is, you know, Newtonian mechanics was very successful. Ultimately, we think that it's not quite right. Um, mm -hmm. And if things are either very heavy or very moving very fast or very small, then it doesn't work. But we can show how in certain limits, if your football is being kicked by a uh, human rather than a kind of incredibly strong alien that it's going to be traveling at speeds when Newtonian mechanics is still really good. So we can understand how those theories are related to each other. In particular, we can understand how to construct one theory out of another. You know, in a particular limit, you get back your one theory from another. And I think that relationship is really useful for seeing which scales you think different theories will work at. Because if you can show that you're going to get back Newtonian mechanics in the low velocity limit, then that kind of explains why Newtonian mechanics was really good there. And I think that's a way of seeing that as a kind of one pattern emerging out of kind of another more fundamental pattern in a certain regime. So I think reduction is really helpful for understanding how the different uh, kind of theories and laws that we have all fit together. You asked whether that's compatible with thinking there are laws at different levels. So some people have said, no, if you've got kind of emergent laws, emergence, you know, is one of those words that's like so controversial what you mean by it. But for some people, emergence just means the failure of reduction. So for those people, that story about getting theories back in different limits or whatever, that's going to be a case of reduction. And if there's reduction, then there's no emergence. So there aren't these kind of 
Uh, there's a kind of no meaty sense in which there's these kind of new things mm. at higher levels. Really, it's all just the fundamental things. And you can show why you thought there were other things. You can show why you thought there were Newtonian forces. But really, there isn't. That was just a kind of old way of speaking. I kind of prefer the view where you think of different laws as emerging and they're all kind of on a par with each other in the sense of like some laws are more fundamental than other laws, but none of them are like kind of second grade citizens, you know? Mm. They're like, you get the laws of Newtonian mechanics emerging out of relativistic laws, but that, you know, that's just the right laws to have in that domain. When things are going nice and slow, then that's the kind of <laughs> uh, the, the way to, the kind of laws to use. I like your organization of the topics there in terms of complexity, like the idea that maybe Einstein's view of gravity is more complete, but it's too complicated. Like if I wanted to solve the question of like, what is the Earth's orbit going to be? And you gave me Einstein's gravity, I'd be like, well, I'll be here for a while. Whereas Newtonian mechanics is going to give me the answer straight away. And it's also going to give me a story that I can tell that I understand. And maybe this is also the argument you're making that some of these laws are just more useful in their explanation. Like if I want to tell you, oh, what happened to the ball this afternoon? And then I give you a description of all 10 to the 29 particles and what each of them did doesn't really answer your question. But if I say, oh, it flew in a parabola, um, it landed 480 feet from home base or whatever, that's sort of the story, the explanation that we're looking for. So does that mean that it sort of depends on the question we're asking, that there, there are no more fundamental rules? They're just sort of like laws that answer the questions we're asking? So I guess the, the worry with that is that if it just depends on what question we're asking, you might then think, well, that just depends on what you care about. And so it's really just tied into your interests. And then that kind of starts to look like it's dragging us in the defeatist direction where it's all connected to what we understand mm -hmm. about the world rather than how the world really is. So I think that a helpful way to go is to think of in what sense is Newtonian mechanics better for describing the trajectory of the ball. And I think that the kind of right answer for that is well, when somebody asks you a question, you need to give them the right amount of details. It's not just that uh, that's more useful, like that's the better explanation. And so that would then mean the kind of structures and laws associated to the kind of less fundamental theory are doing the kind of best uh, explanation. And normally people think if something's giving you the best explanation, that's the thing we should take to be true. So this is sometimes mm. called like inference to the best explanation. What's the the reason why the, the apple fell to the ground? Is it because the fairies pushed it or is it because uh, Newtonian mechanics <laughs> or is it because I looked the wrong way? You know, you can think of all the different possible explanations and the kind of mm -hmm. best explanation is the one that we normally take to be true. So if you can kind of give a reason why these non-fundamental theories, you know, we think they're less complete they're missing some of the details about the world, but nonetheless, we think that they're uh, perhaps giving the best explanations. Then we mm. can still be committed to all of this kind of emergent structure and we don't have to relegate it to just kind of useful stories that we tell. We can really say that it's getting at what the world's like. We're lucky that there's some simplicity and that's kind of useful for us. We want to say, and that's really this interesting fact about the world. This is kind of deep thing that despite all this kind of fundamental complexity, there's some kind of relative simplicity at the kind of less fundamental or macroscopic level. Okay, I can't wait to dive deeper into that topic, but first we have to take a quick break. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back and we're talking with philosopher Katie Robertson about whether the universe makes sense, whether there is a single theory of physics out there. And it certainly seems convenient that there are sometimes simple stories that you can tell. And I certainly get the argument that like sometimes those simple stories really are the answer. 
You don't necessarily want the totally microscopic picture in every sense. But the thing that still puzzles me is why that's possible. And the thing I can't get over is the fact that sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes we look at systems and they are complex and our approximations fail and we can't find a simple story to describe the path of hurricanes or the fluctuations of the stock market. So it can't just be that we're looking at the universe and we're asking these questions and we're always able to find some simple story because we are not. So it makes me wonder why they emerge in some cases and not in others, and specifically why they seem to emerge at various scales, right? Like you say, we organize ourselves into physics and biology and chemistry conferences. Is that because of some human interest in the way the universe works at these levels? Or is it because the universe itself, you know, reveals itself and simple stories only at some scales and not at some other scales? If aliens are doing science on some other planet, are they also doing physics and biology and chemistry and having separate conferences the way they don't talk to each other? Or do they have like a different ladder of sciences completely because of their own history? Is there any way to grapple with those questions to try to get a sense for why science seems to be simple at some scales and not at others? I mean, it's a really interesting question, right? The philosopher Jerry Fodor, I think, said something. I'm going to fudge the quote a bit, but it's something like, I expect to find out the answer to why we have something other than physics. Why isn't it just that we only have to do physics and we don't have all these kind of different scales and levels at which we talk about the world? He said something like, I expect to find out the answer to that question the day after I find out why there's something rather than nothing. You know, he kind of said, <laughs> this is a bit of a, an a million dollar question. To my mind, I think there's going to be lots of different answers to that rather than one answer that fits the relations between all different scales. So I think, uh, as is often the case in understanding how different scientific theories are related to each other, the devil's going to be in the details. So I think in the case of thinking about how we get kind of directed processes like your cup of coffee cooling down or a glass smashing on the floor, you know, these processes that we think of as being directed in time, how we get that kind of macroscopic pattern out of the microscopic pattern in uh so how we get that from the microdynamics and how we get to statistical mechanics. That's one area where I think we can see how that happens, how we get that emergence. So what we have in that case is that we have a description that's really kind of uh, detailed at the lower level, right? There's 10 to the 23 molecules in a gas. That's a very complicated description. We can, instead of talking about exactly where molecule 553 is, we can talk about some kind of average properties of the gas. So we can talk about kind of what's sometimes called a kind of coarse grain probability distribution. Instead of following exactly where every single particle is, we just say on average, there's kind of an even smearing of them across the box, for instance. And this kind of coarse graining type procedure is a bit like averaging, you know, you throw away some of the details. And sometimes when we do this, we can kind of uncover new patterns. We can see that, oh, actually, there's kind of a rule about how this kind of new variable that we've defined works. And sometimes when we do that, when we kind of abstract, sometimes you might think of it as being, you know, you're kind of throwing away some details, it's a bit like abstracting to a new variable. Sometimes then we find a new law in terms of that variable. So in the case of statistical mechanics, we can throw away information about uh, the correlations, the kind of three or more particle correlations of the gas molecules all bumping into one another and getting correlated with each other. You can throw away the kind of uh, three or more particle correlations in such a way that you can find a kind of new dynamics at the higher level where you've kind of got this coarse grain dynamic. So something like the Boltzmann equation, which tells you how quickly gases relax to equilibrium. That is kind of an example of these coarse grained irreversible dynamics. So in that case, you've got kind of like a detailed story about how you've got this higher level emergent kind of description and structure. 
in those specific cases. But, you know, there's also other cases where you might use something a bit like coarse graining to kind of throw away the details that you're not going to be able to follow. And sometimes that's good and you can find an equation. Sometimes you can't. Like there's loads of really bad ways to average or coarse grain <laughs> and that you get nothing out of them, right? Like it's, uh, there's this nice quote by this, I think he's a historian of physics, Van Kampen, who says it's kind of, uh, the art of the physicist to find the right variables rather than a kind of science of like exactly how should we treat choose to coarse grain there's the kind of a lot of bad choices you could make but in some cases you can find a kind of closed form dynamics and that's the case where we think we found like a new pattern but you make it sound like a discovery like you're stumbling over something you're like aha look the universe is doing this thing right like we're coming into it uh, we don't necessarily understand why it's possible to go from statistical mechanics description of all those tiny little particles to like, you know, thermodynamics of gases and all this kind of stuff. And you use the word abstraction, which I find really interesting because it tells me that we're like summing up a lot of details. We're saying, forget all the details of what's in here. I'm just going to call this thing a ball and treat it like a point, right? We're like abstracting away a lot of the details. And how do we know that that kind of abstraction isn't sort of arbitrary or cultural, right? Is that us imposing our view on the world? Like, oh, this is interesting. That's not interesting. I want to tell a story about this. Or is it the universe coalescing around something? Like, again, I wonder whether that's us forcing our sort of mental structure on the universe because we can't possibly process all the details. Or if it's really that we're discovering this in the universe, how could we possibly know the difference between those two scenarios without, of course, talking to aliens about their science? How funny we could meet those aliens, eh? So people used to think that the it really was due to like our not being able to kind of keep a hold of all of the details that we use the kind of coarse graining procedure in statistical mechanics. So people thought that the way we chose the kind of averaging technique was according mm -hmm. to like what we could measure. You know, we can't precisely know exactly where each molecule is in the in the box of gas. Then they use that as the kind of motivation for why we could then coarse grain and throw away some of the details because we couldn't measure it. But I actually think that's a really bad explanation of why we coarse grain mm -hmm. because it's not like as we've got better at measuring things we use different coarse graining schemes in statistical mechanics right so it's not really linked to what we can uh, see in, in inverted commas because if it were then as what we see can change we would change uh, kind of averaging or coarse graining techniques so I think that for that reason it's more like the kind of discovering new patterns way of thinking about it rather than it being kind of connected to us because if it was connected to us and we change, we'd expect to see a change connected to that. So yeah, in the in the StatMet case, they really did think that, you know, there's some amazing quotes about the, the time asymmetry that comes out of it. I think somebody described it, I think Prigogine and Stengers describe it as illusory, the kind of resulted kind of entropic asymmetry that you get. Um, somebody else says it's kind of uh, just anthropocentric, you know, it's a feature of us. But I think that once we understand that these techniques that we have of abstracting and throwing away details, they're not necessarily connected to what we know about the world in any kind of detailed way. It might be that we're kind of attending to certain features of the world rather than other bits. You know, we're not focusing on all, all the kind of, ah, what's this particle doing over here? And what's this one doing over here? And I'm going to keep a track of what every single particle in the gas is doing. I'm just going to be interested in a bit more of a zoomed out way. But that zooming out isn't, I think, connected to kind of our perspective on the world. This is interesting sort of second class nature to things that emerge that we talk about all the time in particle physics. Though I never really thought of it as like, you know, derogatory. But, you know, there's recent ideas about how space itself and maybe even time are not 
fundamental to the universe, they emerge, meaning that you could have a universe without space before the quantum bits have woven themselves together into reality, or you could have a universe without time. And it sort of like demotes those things and says they're not essential, they're not fundamental. And it seems to me like you're making the argument that it shouldn't be a demotion, that there's just like, you know, there's a set of these ideas and different ones are applicable in different places in different contexts, but we shouldn't think of the most fundamental as necessarily the most primary or the most true. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. There's a kind of tendency sometimes in philosophy to really only focus on the fundamental. I mean, I guess um, Anderson in his famous more is more is different paper, right, was kind of pointing to a similar tendency within physics. He was saying, look, it's really important to look at these other areas of physics, not just fundamental physics. And yeah, I think it's right to think of these non-fundamental things as uh, not kind of second class in that way. Not just because, you know, <laughs> condensed matter physicists want funding too, um, but because they're also telling us true things about the world. And it's kind of an interesting conundrum, I think, connected to the one that you mentioned at the outset about, you know, why, is, why isn't why is all not just kind of buzzing confusion? Why do we get the simplicity? I think an interesting question is, you know, even if we were to understand the very kind of fundamental nature of the world, there'd still be so much we didn't know, right? Like we wouldn't understand stereotype threat in psychology or something, you know? Like it's not like just knowing about the fundamental is enough to give you the kind of knowledge of all these other levels. So I think, uh, yeah, understanding these levels is really important as well. Yeah, I think you're right. And obviously, even if we had like string theory or the most fundamental theory, it wouldn't tell us, you know, how do you raise your children or how do you make chicken soup, you know, or even where is the ball going to fly when somebody hits it with a bat? And I think maybe the primacy comes because some people, not everybody, are interested in the most fundamental questions. They want to know what is the most fundamental picture of the universe, even if that is not relevant to our everyday lives and to important questions like how can we build a faster computer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Something that confuses me about these non-fundamental theories, these effective theories, you know, the ones that work so well, fluid dynamics and galaxy formation, is that they feel sometimes inconsistent. You know, like, for example, the basic equation of fluid dynamics, the Navier-Stokes equation, makes this assumption that the fluids you're describing is continuous, that it's explicitly not made of tiny little bits of, like of sand. But of course, we know that they are, right? So shouldn't theories like fit together more smoothly? I mean, I love how Newtonian theory is an extreme case of Einsteinian theory, but that seems like, is that maybe an exception? Because in other cases, you know, the assumptions you have to make at different levels are incompatible. It gives me a sense that science is more like, you know, a, a disjoint patchwork than really like a smooth idea that you're like shining a lamppost on at different scales. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question because you know, one way to get around the, the fact that the Navier-Stokes equation says that everything is continuous is to say, well, instead of it saying this false thing, we're just going to say that it shouldn't say anything about that. You know, we should just reinterpret it as like not committing either way. And so you can kind of think of a kind of selective approach to your theories, you know, like some bits of the uh, we shouldn't take too seriously. And that's often what people have thought about old theories, right? Which is um, mm. they got some bits right and they got some bits wrong. And one way that sometimes people like to think about the world, which comes back to this question of how our theories relate to the world, is that not everything they say is correct. So some people mm. want to say that the really important thing that's kind of continuous between the different scales and continuous across um, theory change is the kind of mathematical structure. The kind of extra details about what the kind of furniture of the world is like whether fluids are continuous or not, that's the kind of thing where historically they've got it a bit wrong. But normally the mathematical equations are at least approximately 
the right thing. So this is sometimes called like structural realism. And the idea is that instead of kind of taking your scientific theory at its word, you should really only be committed to the kind of mathematical structure of the theory. But doesn't the math come out of these assumptions? Like you start from these assumptions and then you can build the math on top of them. And then like the axiomatic foundations of the theory, right? How can you have the math without the foundations? Well, this is a kind of a, a tricky question for the structural realists, right? They want to say the laws, we're getting those right. But what the kind of objects in that those laws are we're not quite so sure about i mean quantum mechanics is a kind of clear case for this right like we're really confident about the schrodinger equation exactly what quantum particles are like uh you know <laughs> you're gonna end up with a, a big disagreement when you have a group of physicists discussing so the idea is that it's a kind of like epistemic security you know you don't want to put your mm. neck over the parapet too much you've got to just commit to the bits of your theory that you think are really kind of secure and good and maybe these are these assumptions about for instance fluids being continuous are kind of the kind of ladder or scaffolding that helps you get to your theory but you can kind of kick away afterwards and say the thing i'm i'm really confident about and i think is getting at the nature of the world is the the kind of equations and the math but everything else i'm gonna just uh not commit too much to well i can't be too critical of that kind of strategy since as a particle physicist i couldn't even really tell you like what is a particle after all right and you're right we certainly do a lot of particle physics and we collide them and we describe them and we have excellent descriptions of them without even really knowing what it is we're talking about <laughs> so uh, i definitely have very little ground to stand on there Okay, I have a lot more questions for you, Katie, but first we have to pause for another quick break. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back and we're talking to Dr. Katie Robertson, a philosopher of physics, about whether it's possible to understand everything in the universe with a single theory. I want to take us in another direction, which is sort of further down the skeptical road. You know, if each science is helping us understand a part of the world, and if we say, you know, each one has their own area of validity, is it possible that we can eventually stitch them together to get a holistic understanding of the underlying truth? The idea being like, The more lampposts you turn on, the more ground truth you're revealing. And I'm reading this book by Nancy Cartwright, who has this school of thought. Her book is called The Dappled World. And she seems to be arguing that there might not be unity to science, that there isn't a whole truth underneath it that we're revealing, that each piece could actually be separate and not link up into a coherent picture. Frankly, as a somebody who's born and bred as a particle physicist, I struggle to comprehend this argument. What is the argument here? Can you walk us through how to get to that sort of state of mind? So I guess you can think of there as being kind of two issues. The first is we seem to go about doing science in this very kind of institutional each you know, in this kind of patchwork way, right? The kind of, I think she describes it as like, you know, some of the edges line up neatly, others are kind of frayed and they don't quite connect. You know, some disciplines really do kind of fit together with each other in a nice way and other ones it's a bit more complicated. But we seem to get away with doing things like that. So there's kind of one question, which is like, how can we do that if really everything is made up of whatever the most fundamental stuff is? Why did we get away with ignoring those details, which is kind of the question that we started with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the question on the kind of other side is, if you think that all these patches don't line up, they're not unified, then how come we sometimes have uh, processes like kind of, you can think of like a causal process as leaping across patches. And when we have, for instance, MRI scans for the detection of disease, for instance, mm-hmm. that seems like a case where we can't say, oh, biology is just about something like totally different from physics. Because if that were the case, why would physics be so useful in understanding things in biology? So I kind of see the patchwork view as giving you an easy answer to the first problem. Why is there all these different things at different levels? Well, there's just different things going on at different levels. There isn't this kind of unified picture. So it kind of gives you an easy answer to that question. But then you have a hard answer, which is, well, if these patches are kind of 
insulated from each other in this different way? Why is it that there's these kind of, it looks like kind of causal processes going between them or kind of threads running through uh, different sciences? So I think that's part of the motivation. But another key part of Cartwright's picture is that she has a, I think it was the book before The Daffled World, a book with the the title, How the Laws of Physics Lie. <laughs> clickbait, clickbait. <laughs> it's from the 80s, but definitely, you know, the original philosophy of physics clickbait, where she argues that, you know, our laws are so abstract and they apply in such tightly controlled situations in the lab that we're used to kind of screening off the kind of noise from the environment, but really kind of out in the wild. The law mm-hmm. is kind of a lawless land. You know, the, the laws that we're used to having, we have no kind of good reason for thinking that they would carry across, which is a view I find hard to stomach. And uh, like you, I like the idea of there being kind of the different things happening at different scales but I still like thinking that it's kind of all connected in there's these kind of links between them things Mm -hmm. emerge out of other things and I'm the fan of the more emergentist type (laughs) view than the patchwork view but that's that's the, the motivation I think well I'm sort of shocked that you describe the picture of there are just different rules for different situations is sort of like the easy answer because that like rocks me to the core. I have a hard time understanding like, well, then what is the universe, right? Like, how does it decide when to use one set of laws and not another set of laws? In Cartwright's book, she has this quote, which when I read this, I had like dropped the book. I couldn't believe it. She says, laws of nature are limited in their range. In regions that seem to overlap, there may be no rules at all for composing the separate effects. And some situations may not be subject to law at all. What happens, happens by hap, which is like, is the universe whimsical? Is it just like making stuff up as it goes along? I mean, that's certainly not my experience of the universe and the experience of experimental physics for hundreds of years. Is this sort of like a an exercise in skepticism by Cartwright? Like, how do we really know that the laws that we isolate in the laboratory also apply out on the windblown streets? Or do you think this is really a coherent philosophical position and one that's revealing our blinders, our, you know, the assumptions we've been making about the universe uh, because of the way our minds work? It's an interesting question because I think that I kind of have the same gut feeling as you in that when you think about describing a bigger and bigger system, there's no point where you're told, no, don't take the tensor product of those two systems together, the Schrodinger (laughs) equation, it will stop working. So it doesn't seem to really go with what our experience of doing physics is like. But Cartwright is very sensitive, I think, to the kind of details of the practice of physics in a way that sometimes Mm -hmm. philosophers have just assumed, well, Mm -hmm. there'll be a theory that applies to everything. And they've sort of just taken it as this kind of brute fact about the way the world is. And I guess I see her as sort of like poking at that assumption and saying, well, how well justified is that? I think that, yeah, my, my hunch is that I think that we, we can say that it's a well justified assumption and that it hasn't not worked so far. But equally, I guess, I think her emphasis on just how tightly controlled certain experimental contexts are and being careful about kind of exporting that to other cases, I think is an important thing. And I think at the beginning of her book, she has this kind of way of casting what she's doing as a slightly different approach. So she says, there's kind of two enterprises that science is involved in, representing the way the world is, and then intervening on the world. And obviously, other sciences, like medical sciences, are obviously really interested in the intervening part. In medicine, sometimes we know exactly 
what to do to help something. We don't necessarily know all the mechanisms behind it that mean that that works, but we know how to intervene on the world, sometimes at least. And she kind of puts herself in the camp of saying, I'm not as interested in the the project of representing the world. I'm more interested in the project of intervening on the world. But she worries that the uh, by not thinking about how we want to intervene on the world. The fact that that's what she's interested in, she has this, these kind of lovely pictures where she shows like the, uh, maybe you remember them from the beginning of the book, where it's like kind of like the messy house and then the tidy house. And she kind of says, we need to understand that the world is kind of messier than we think that it sometimes is, because then when we want to intervene on the world, we're going to be more successful in doing so, because we've got a kind of better idea of what things are like. Um, so I think that's part of her motivation. But I think at the end of the day, I still come down on there. I think that it's uh, much more uh, connected. I don't think there's these kind of lawless lands between the patches of laws. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of her examples that I found really interesting was thinking about how to apply physics in the real world, right? And so you take a coin, for example, and it drops and you can say, well, a coin is mostly described by F equals MA. It's mostly just dominated by gravity. It's a fairly simple situation. And I guess this is the kind of thing she would say is essentially screened off from the other details. But if instead of dropping a coin, you drop like a banknote and it's a windy day, then could you possibly ever describe the motion of that banknote using F equals MA? This like this bit of wind and that bit of wind and the other bit of wind. And in that situation, like, you know, one might ask, is it just too complicated and it's a lot of different sums or is it really not described by any physics at all? And I guess her point is you can't ever really tell, right? You know, in the absence of a model that yields accurate predictions, we have no grounds for thinking that any particular law applies is another quote from her book. And I guess I find that useful as like a warning, like keep in mind, you don't really know how to solve most of the situations in the world outside of your well-controlled experiments. But, you know, we also have this history in physics of success. You know, we build transistors in the laboratory and then they fly airplanes that mostly don't crash, right? Out in the complicated world. And in the history of physics, we see this like, unification where electricity and magnetism come together we add the weak force maybe in the future we'll be able to combine that with the strong force and gravity it seems to me like argument of history at least is against her is that the view mostly in mainstream philosophy or is there a camp of people who are continuing this work so there are a camp of people that are continuing in the kind of cartwright line of thinking i think you're completely right to kind of characterize it as a kind of kind of epistemic humility warning, you know, like you don't have a warrant to say that it's definitely going to work. So I think that's a really important part of the project. And but then on the other hand, you kind of are torn in the other direction, which is, well, we've we've not yet found a situation where that doesn't, you know, for, for objects of the size of a banknote, just summing up all the forces on it doesn't work as a way of predicting what happens. Okay, maybe we won't ever be able to do it in the case of the banknote because it's just too complicated. But I guess that's that's the kind of warrant that we have for kind of holding on to the idea that maybe we can't predict it, but it is like predictable in principle. Maybe aliens with their supercomputers have totally solved that problem. All right, so then my last question for you is, aside from meeting aliens with super advanced answers to questions in physics and philosophy, what do you think are prospects for making progress on these questions. I mean, we can't ever really understand how a banknote flutters in the wind. Are we going to be able to figure out if there is a grand unified theory out there for us to work towards, or if the universe is really just a patchwork? How do we understand these things? Are philosophers going to be arguing about this for a thousand years, or are we actually going to figure this out? I guess we don't, I don't know really, because I think that it comes back to like whether we think that 
even if it's going to be a patchwork, even if, you know, sometimes people say it's kind of turtles all the way down, you know, we could just keep smashing particles together and finding new particles forever and ever, you know. You make that sound like a bad thing. That sounds like job security for me. <laughs> In that case, then we would expect kind of, you know, that there isn't a fundamental level that would be a bit like saying mm. perhaps. I'm tempted to think that even if we, it, that could be the case or it could be a patchwork, we still, the best methodology that we would um, have is to keep looking for kind of more fundamental theories and mm -hmm. I think working out how everything kind of patches together. You know, is it going to be that we always have a kind of effective theory that works within a certain domain and then a more fundamental theory underlying that? Um, it'd be really interesting. I mean, uh, there's particularly for the case of things like black holes, there's fascinating questions of how things will turn out. So I'm tempted to think whilst at the moment I'd place my bets on it not being a patchwork in the sense of there's lawless kind of lands between the patches. It'll be interesting to find out. <laughs> Well, I like the way you describe the arc of science there. We're like discovering, we're letting the universe tell us its story. And I just hope that we're not too biased by the way we're listening to the story, to the story we want to hear, that we are able to absorb, you know, the shocking truth of the universe, because it sometimes takes us, you know, decades or centuries to really come to grips with what the experiments are telling us. It's it's hard to deviate sometimes from sort of like the historical path of science and, you know, I'm not sure I can pronounce that phrase, epistemical humility. We should try to maintain that as much as possible, but also make progress on the science at the same time. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, today on the podcast and for talking about these really important, but also very abstract questions about the way we do science. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.